Mr. Abrams, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, we are in a different world now. The world is changing. You've been practicing law a whole lot longer than me. What do you think about this Zoom stuff, this remote stuff? I, I like it, but many don't. Well, it's still a hard word for me. It's very hard to get used to. Um, I mean, I find myself, uh, I, I interviewed a, 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 a very prominent lawyer yesterday, uh, Carter Phillips, who's argued 88 Supreme Court cases, et cetera. But for me to press the right button to make sure that everything was okay, uh, the interview was fine. I wasn't because I was apprehensive about getting it all done right. You know, I'd say, look, in criminal cases, with the exception of a trial and sentencing, arraignments, a couple of other things, most of this stuff you could do remote. Am I wrong? Yeah, uh, most of the, a lot of the legal stuff you, you can do uh, remote. Uh, trials aren't the same, in Absolutely. my view. Um, I mean, I agree with the, with your distinction that in criminal cases in particular, uh, it's especially important for everything to be more or less as it's been through our juridical history, really. Uh, um, um, and yeah, I also think that uh, what conferences, judges meeting with lawyers, you shouldn't have to fly out to Denver for a, a, a 20 minute conference, which really can be done uh, perfectly well on Zoom. Um, but when it comes down to the uh, sort of the end of the line, uh, even civil trials, although I don't feel as strongly about that, but even civil trials, I think, are better done in person in terms of the, the sense of justice at the end of it and the ability of lawyers and judges, judges in particular, uh, to, to you know to under, to comprehend uh, are the jurors half asleep uh, are the lawyers you know doing something in person just sort of off putting that there's no reason to have them do absolutely no we agree on that um, we agree on what I would imagine is most of the discussion on the First Amendment we're about to have um, and that's really your bread and butter. You know, there's been this perception that the First Amendment is, quote unquote, under attack, right? Uh, things like cancel culture as a response to things like hate speech. What say you? Um, I haven't come to that use of my vocabulary yet to say that. I... I am concerned that uh, a Supreme Court that has been so willing to dispose of, uh, overrule, often even mock well-established uh, 
principles of law established uh, 50 years ago um that that their 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 willingness to you know just uh, jettison uh what had been the law in the area of you know guns and religion and abortion uh, you know and some other areas <clears throat> it does give me pause about what what they're going to do in the first amendment area in situations in which they the majority of this court might not have done the same thing at that time um that said right now i think first amendment law uh, remains uh, strong in terms of uh, freedom of speech and freedom of the press although i am uh, i'm concerned enough to have just begun directing a two-year study of freedom of the press uh, and, and and to try to start at the beginning with those four words that's all there is in the first amendment you know congressman make no abridging abridging the freedom of speech or of the press you know well is social media press is uh i, I mean there they're going to be a lot of new issues and of course there may be some old ones uh a number of members on the supreme court have already indicated uh two for sure and i i suspect more uh a desire to overrule new york times against sullivan i mean maybe maybe the greatest uh press maybe the greatest first amendment victory in our country's history and you mentioned social media there for a minute obviously there's no doubt in terms of the the standards that have been established many many years ago as it relates to state action and other things social media is kind of in this weird world these days where a lot of folks are saying these are private actors but they occupy so much of the public forum that they should be constitutionally unprotected um i don't agree with that uh what about you no i don't agree with it either uh i think the argument that uh because they have so much power and they do uh therefore you should limit it that's an argument which has been made and fortunately in my view that has failed against the print press uh pretty much through our history but certainly since the uh, Tornillo case in the 1970s that's been off limits I mean it, it's been clear with respect to the print press that even in a small area even when a, one newspaper has enormous power uh, uh e even when that power goes so far to affect uh, maybe maybe ultimately come close to controlling who's elected even there you know so far we basically have been saying you can't tell a newspaper what to print period you can't limit subject to constitutional norms but you can't limit what a newspaper prints now uh, it'll be interesting to see <laughs> the new face 
of Twitter um, uh, on a few levels. One is be interesting, almost, I don't want to say anecdotally, but but be interesting to see if if people who believe as I do that that very broad protection has to be afforded to social media, um, not necessarily as far as Congress has gone, but that that's something else. But under the First Amendment, very broad protection uh, ought to be afforded. It'll be interesting to see now that Elon Musk is uh, in play. Um, you know how many people on the sort of left or center left that have been saying, as I have, that they have a right to make their own content uh, moderation decisions. Uh, uh, you know, will will people say that once he, once those decisions are painful, painful? because there'll be more what neo-Nazi stuff on, uh, more pornographic stuff on, uh, stuff which uh, is uh, at its core protected under the First Amendment, but which has been limited by the, the, the owners of the large entities uh, that have hundreds of millions of uh, participants and subscribers, uh, you know, they've, They've engaged, whether they call it that or not, in a sort of editing process that uh, that's off limits. Uh, this is off. This is okay. I think that's fine. In fact, I think it's a good idea. But but uh, it, it, I, I, not just intellectually. It, it will be important what the legal responses, if any, are to a sort of more forthright, hard-hitting, right-wing, sometimes more racist uh, entity if uh, if that's the direction Twitter goes in. And you've touched upon it, right? Hate speech. Hate speech is, is, is a big one, has always been a big one, uh, still a big one. Um, why is it important? It sounds counterintuitive. It sounds silly. To protect hate speech, for uh, it, the most part, it's important because it's part of a a larger edifice of protecting free speech, even if we disagree with the message uh, of the speech. And and that is that you know once the government is empowered to to cut back, you know even on pretty anti-social uh, uh, speech, it, it tends inevitably to do it. I mean, even, even democratic countries in Europe do it. Uh, uh, England had a, a case a few years ago where uh, <clears throat> people at, the, at a port city into which immigrants came were carrying signs showing uh, our World Trade Center aflame. Uh, and the words there were essentially no more Muslims. Now that violates the law in England. That would be protected speech here. It violates the law throughout Western Europe. 
uh, and you know, of course, if if that were all, if somehow one could one could form a society where yeah, just that wouldn't be allowed, you no, know, life would would go on. But but the the reality is that one thing does lead to another, and one uh, grant of power to the government saying you can't say that uh, does lead. And, and historically has led to much broader deprivations of free speech. So, so, so we don't allow everything. Of course, some things are not protected by the First Amendment, but within the realm of the First Amendment, we, we protect much more speech than other serious, uh, legally trained Western democracies uh, do. Uh, I think I think that's good for us to do. I mean, I don't, uh, you know, Canada, England. I mean, countries, serious countries with serious rule of law, serious freedom, uh, uh, have cut back compared to us quite a bit uh, of what we would allow and protect uh, under the First Amendment. And historically some of the phrases that have been thrown around to limit uh, those protections are phrases like security, classified information. Talk mm. to me about Pentagon Papers and your involvement in that case many, many years ago. Right. Um, during the war in Vietnam, uh, already an unpopular war out of which no one could figure out how to, how to how to leave or what, why to stay or what would happen, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, frustrated with the war, frustrated with its pace, frustrated with the amount of American getting killed in the war, fighting in Vietnam, finally said uh, to his aides, write something up. How did we get here? What What's the history of American involvement in Vietnam? And many months later, a rather distinguished group of uh, people within the Department of Justice uh, prepared a 7,000-word uh, summary of the beginning, middle, and to that point, up-to-date uh, uh, policies of the U.S., how we got in, why we stayed, what presidents said, often what presidents said that weren't really so, what presidents didn't say about how we got in, things like that. <clears throat> it was classified as what's called top secret. Top secret means by its definition that revelation of it could do very serious damage uh, to the country. And the way the classification system works is if anything in a document is classified, the whole document is classified. Uh, one of the authors of it, uh, who had been a Marine in Vietnam, Daniel Ellsberg, had come to think that it was all a terrible mistake. In fact, in Ellsberg's view, it was a war crime, uh, what was going on 
in Vietnam. And he made available in confidence to the New York Times the totality, with one exception, of what was in what came to be known as the Pentagon Papers, because it was done by and for the Department of Defense. Um, what he didn't turn over at all was anything about trying to negotiate an end to the war, because he thought that might interfere with doing just that. Um, so the Nixon administration was uh, uh, furious. And uh, to be fair to them, at least in this one respect, uh, they didn't come out badly. I mean, that they were the latest administration. Uh, the Johnson administration came out sort of worse. But it went way back uh, uh, to Eisenhower, before Eisenhower, to Truman, World War II, where we're we helping the French in Indochina, you know, things like that. Um, and so uh, I was a young partner uh, in my law firm, the Cahill Gordon firm. Um, and I had done some work, a good deal of work for NBC uh, as an associate and then a partner uh, in the firm. Um, this was the first brief in which competing elements of the press decided to get together and and write a brief. And by the now, I mean, there was a case involving the protection of confidential sources of journalists. And so NBC, CBS, ABC, the New York Times, other publications all said, why don't, why don't we have one brief in the Supreme Court about confidential sources? Um, and uh, I was the, the law firm guy that was asked to shepherd it through. Um, and my professor from Yale Law School, Alexander Bickle, was chosen as the person to essentially write it. Uh, and so we had a meeting. We had, Bickle was at Stanford Law for the year. Uh, he flew in for a meeting, a lunch that I gave with media counsel, uh, uh, hardly any of which of whom I had met before. And all the people at the lunch wanted to talk about was not confidential sources, but the publication the day before by the New York Times of portions of the Pentagon Papers. And so Bickle and I were asked uh, this sort of, you know, smart, savvy questions, but everybody wanted to know one answer. Will the government go to court? And if they do, will they win? Can they stop it? And both Bickle and I wrongly said, oh, they won't go to court. Uh, the Nixon administration doesn't look bad. Uh, and it didn't. They, they were barely in it. Um, uh, we were too cynical in that respect. But more important, both of us said in substance, we don't live in a country with prior restraints on newspapers. Newspapers report news, they get news. The fact that it's classified uh, doesn't change that. I mean, at some point, the Espionage Act should be involved, but, but 
put that aside. Um, so Vikram and I said that, uh, and uh, the lunch went on. That afternoon, the Times got a telegram from the Department of Justice demanding that they cease publication, return the Pentagon Papers, and otherwise sort of shut up about anything in these, these papers. Uh, and the Times asked their lawyers who had represented them for 60 years to represent them, and they refused. Uh, they had already advised them not to publish. They had already told them they thought it would violate the Espionage Act. And so the Times found itself, as one author later phrased it, uh, like a vicar found in a house of ill repute at midnight without a lawyer. And so they called Bickle, and Bickle would need a law firm to work on, and me. And that's how my life changed. Uh, and so, you know, that case came, and the whole case took two weeks uh, from beginning to end, from the first call through a decision of the Supreme Court uh, with arguments in every court. Uh, I, I made one argument, but Bickle made the arguments. Um, and he went back to Yale Law School. And, you know, for a pretty long time, I had become the uh, First Amendment lawyer, the First Amendment press lawyer. Uh, and, and so, you know, very happily from my perspective, uh, that was the beginning of a, uh, a near, not quite, a near full-time focus by me uh, on First Amendment matters, at, at least as the core uh, of my, my practice. And that is the reputation that brought you into a case referred to by many simply as Citizens United. Tell me about Citizens United and count. Um, so after I'd practiced law now for many years in this area, in the First Amendment area, um, one of the things I was interested in, but was not involved with uh, in terms of uh, having any client was campaign finance. Um, my clients had more often than not been corporations, media corporations, but corporations, companies. And so for me, the notion that because what was involved in terms of uh, money changing hands to, to support candidates involved uh, a corporation was no barrier to me. I didn't think the fact that corporations were were uh, the focus of congressional attendance uh, should change whatever First Amendment rights would otherwise exist. Uh, you know, my clients had been NBC and the New York Times and Columbia University. Just about every entity I represented was in corporate form. Uh, 
uh, when President Clinton got in trouble with uh, uh, Ms. Lewinsky, a bookstore in Washington was subpoenaed to answer the question of what books did she buy to give him? And the bookstore didn't want to answer that. And they called me and I represented them saying, uh, it's, arguing that it was all protected. So, so coming into Citizens United, I didn't start with the same sense as a lot of people whose political views uh, more often than not are in alignment with. Um, and I didn't think that the fact that money was involved should basically change the dynamics of it. Since again, the clients that I were representing sold their stories in, as, to the public. I mean, they, right. they made their money uh, based on that. So in that sense, I, I came to it a lot, uh, uh, you could say uh, freed, but, but lacking even some of the 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 concerns of corporations coming to run everything uh, and the like. Um, and I thought basically the same First Amendment rules ought to apply to them as to anyone else. Um, and uh, Senator McConnell had um, heard of me and called me and asked me if I would represent him my clients, my my political uh, uh, involvement had always been and remains on the other side uh, from him. But I thought he was on the right side uh, in the Citizens United case. And so uh, he was a defendant in one or two of the preceding cases about money and politics. And so I agreed to represent him uh, uh, in the Supreme Court when the Citizens United case uh, came before the court. Uh, Citizens United had its own lawyer. Uh, it, it was a political, a right-wing political entity that had made movies essentially denouncing Hillary Clinton and saying she was unfit to be president. I thought that you know, there couldn't be anything more protected than that, that sort of speech, who to elect, who not to elect, uh, uh, et cetera. So in any event, that's how I became involved in Citizens United. I saw recently that at least one professor had called it one of the 10 worst Supreme Court opinions ever. Uh, and uh, I I never agreed with that. Um, but I, you know, I did get to, uh, I was one of the two lawyers who argued it. You know, recently, there have been numerous well-recognized defamation cases in the press. I feel like there's a new one filed every week. There's a really strong connection, obviously, legally, between defamation and the First Amendment. Uh, there was a case involving Donald Trump suing CNN uh, several weeks ago. There are talks of a lawsuit being filed against the guy that used to call himself Kanye West. 
by you mentioned that the cnn lawsuit has no merit right talk to me about the actual malice requirement and why it's so important right so when the uh u.s supreme court in 1964 addressed really for the first time the question of the interplay between libel law and the first amendment and i'll just interject by saying that until then, when I was in law school, which was before that, libel was just taught as an entirely independent body of law with rules about libel cases and with no First Amendment injection uh, into it. Uh, um, sort of like admiralty. Admiralty is about ships at sea. The you know, people that do admiralty were, have their own vocabulary, the law. Is, is the law of the sea, et cetera, et cetera. Libel was like that. Uh, when New York Times versus Sullivan came up, you know, here's a case about full-page advertisement in the New York Times during the height of the civil rights revolution at a time when uh, a lot of newspapers in the South were pro-segregation, uh, and the New York Times publishes a big fundraiser focusing on Martin Luther King being in jail in Birmingham. Um, again, it was an ad. The Times didn't write it. Um, <clears throat> and the lawsuit was filed by the sheriff in Birmingham. Uh, sheriff Sullivan, famous now in law. Uh, saying, uh, you said we wouldn't let Reverend King uh, sing at night. It's not true. You said this about the Times. That wasn't true. This wasn't true. Some of them weren't. Some of them were, were off a bit. And the basic thrust was he shouldn't be in jail uh, and he's being mistreated. Uh, um, so the Supreme Court, after an Alabama all-white jury, uh, rendered a big verdict against the Times, affirmed by the Alabama Supreme Court. The civil rights revolution is going on. And the question is, what would the Supreme Court do about a libel case in a situation like that? Um, and their answer, uh, urged on by a wonderful, great brief by a Columbia Law School professor, um, was when a newspaper writes about a public figure like the sheriff, even if they got something wrong, there's no liability unless they did it on purpose or unless they did it with a high degree of awareness that it was probably untrue. That's what we call actual malice. Very unfortunate choice of words by the Supreme Court because it's not what anyone means by malice. Right, right. But, 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 but it is deliberate falsehoods as opposed to mistakes. Now, in cases that don't involve public people, no, you know, even a mistaken statement about you can lead to terrible harm for you. And, and you know, you still have a right to go to court and have basically all the old rules 
applicable in libel cases uh, applicable there. Uh, but with a public figure, uh, it became different. And so that was the beginning of a, an entirely new body of protected speech. Um, and we are still pretty much alone in the world uh, in going down that road as we have. Uh, I mean, even great democracies, even Canada, Australia, France, uh, you know, you got something wrong as a generality. You get something wrong you, and you hurt someone, you may have to pay for it. Right. And we've taken this extra step of saying that it is so important to protect speech about public people that we'll, we'll take a chance on some people who have been wronged not being able to recover for what the court basically said was the the greater good or the more important uh, uh, proposition that people have to be free to criticize the government or people in power, even if it sometimes seeps over into areas where they, they can't prove it or anything. And so all these cases, the ones I mentioned with CNN and the ones I mentioned with Kanye West, yeah. really, really tough on the law. Yeah, I mean these are not these are not serious cases. Uh, I mean, CNN one Trump doesn't like to be called uh, whatever they call them, but but uh, 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 I mean it's it's not a serious case. Um, the Kanye West one is a different issue, right? And, and that's the issue of group libel. Um, uh, which again, most democratic countries do not protect that speech. Uh, that's certainly true of, you know, countries on the losing side, Germany, etc., in uh, World War II with their terrible history uh, of suppressing speech and the like. Um, but uh, you know, it's true again uh, of England. Um, and and Canada, etc. So you know we've we've taken this added step of saying it's so important to protect critical speech about people in power, surely in government, but even outside government, uh, that we're going to give in effect the press a break. Uh, so. So they will feel free and act free, hopefully within reasonable bounds right. and, and only impose liability whether they sort of purposely mess up. What do you consider these days to be the biggest, if there is one, constitutional crisis in this country? Is it a First Amendment issue? Is it a Fourth Amendment stop and frisk? Is it due process, what do you think? Uh, I, I haven't thought that out enough. I, I, let me answer it in part. The area of, of First Amendment law 
that I think right now is most um, uh, center stage with results uh, not predictable with, with any surety is how to treat the internet um, and uh, what the law will be with respect to um, social media, um, false statements um, uh, about groups or about uh, individuals. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the question being more, more broadly, how, how, how shall we treat social media? We've already given them this enormous break with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, so, you know, they can't be held responsible for certain things online that the New York Times could be held responsible for. And that came about because uh, Congress decided it was important to encourage the creation of the internet. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, 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 Facebook's got 2 billion subscribers. Can they be liable uh, for every libel on Facebook? I mean, the people that, that say it, of course, can be. Um, so uh, the, the, coming to the answer, the answer is content moderation policies. Uh, and, and there, uh, we do have some states that have passed laws uh, basically limiting the protection of, of social media uh, in a way so that 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 sort of speech would not be uh, be protected. So when in one of the cases arising in Texas, a judge asked the lawyer for the social media companies, basically, are you saying that you can make a politicized decision that you, you prefer this guy wins the election and that guy loses the election? And you don't let the bad guy, in your view, on. And you do let the guy on who you think is the better. Or you say, you can't say that because we think it's untrue, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a sort of how much freedom of speech, or if one views it this way, freedom of the press, shall we give to the, the, the so powerful social media entities who have so many more viewers participants than than ever read let alone spoken and and to and with uh the the, the broader public in the history of of uh, you know our society um that seems to me the most important uh, undecided case. I mean, uh, I mean, my inclination, maybe not surprisingly, but my inclination is to say that they have, that they should have basically the same right as a newspaper to say, yeah, we, we don't want to carry that. 
uh, yes, pornography may be protected by the First Amendment. We don't want it. Uh, uh, or, you know, other speech, uh, uh, hate speech, uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Black speech, uh, which is protected in general, uh, if it's not an immediate inducement to criminal conduct. But, but again, only in America is that speech protected and the, and the, the question is going to be, well, to what degree should we, may we, ought we to, to treat social media different than the, the press as we've come to know it? Mr. Abrams, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure. I wish you well.